We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall never surrender until in God's good time, the new world, with all its power and might, steps forth to the rescue and the liberation of people. In times of universal deceit, truth is the only rebellion left. As we finish out the week, I want to go back one more time to the Epistle of Romans, chapter 13, verse 1, and give you my defense for why I believe as a biblical Christian, I am not obligated to bow to the government every time it says bow. Human freedom is a first thing. I'm Dr. Ever Piper, and this is The Rebellion. Welcome to today's Rebellion. This is the end of the week, and I want to tie a bow around an argument that I've been trying to make in the last couple shows. As you know, if you've been listening, I've been dealing with this passage from the Epistle of Romans, St. Paul's letter to the Church of Rome during the first century, some 2,000 years ago, where he was telling the Romans, the new Christians, how they should live their lives. And as you know, chapter 13, verse 1, out of that particular book, out of that letter, from the Apostle Paul to the Church of Rome, has been front and center in a lot of our conversation recently. Especially if you're a Christian, you know that you've been told that this applies to you. And I agree, it does. I'm a conservative Christian, as you know. I'm an inerrantist, meaning I believe the Bible is without error. I hold the Bible in, as a supreme authority, okay? It is the rule that defines our Christian faith. Sola Scriptura, if you will, the Bible alone, it is the trump card on the game. I do believe in reason. I do believe in tradition. I do believe in experience. I've talked to you before about the quadrilateral, the lens through which we can evaluate a worldview. Reason, you have a rational brain, use it. Don't ignore logic. Don't always give in to emotions. You want to consider the facts of the matter. Don't allow your emotions to run crazy. You need to think your way through a problem. And you want to engage in debate logically, not emotionally. I do believe in tradition, otherwise known as history. And I've told you before that what grandma and grandpa believed might actually be worthy of your consideration. In other words, the old ideas that have stood the test of time, have probably done so for a reason. Therefore, just don't throw it all out. Just because something is old doesn't mean it lacks value. In fact, it could be of greater value because it's been around a while. And that is very true of ideas. Ideas that have stood the test of time. Traditional ideas. Ideas that have endured the test of history are ideas that we should consider perhaps even as being better than new ideas. This is the issue of chronological snobbery that C.S. Lewis talks about. Just because you've got a new idea that's five seconds old doesn't mean you throw out 2,000 years of church tradition and history because you came up with some emergent and popular and woke idea just yesterday. Does that make sense? So yes, reason and tradition. And then experience. You know what I'm going to say right now. That's the Dr. Phil issue. How's that one working for you? 
if you if you find that the worldview you're embracing is one that causes a lot of um, ill will, causes a lot of anger, causes a lot of harm and hurt. For example, Marxism. If that's the worldview that you're starting to embrace, you might want to consider the fact that 100 million people have died as the result of that worldview. So how's that one working for you? It's not working very well. If you've embraced sexual nihilism, well, what about all of the STDs and the various different negative consequences that come as the result of sexual nihilism and promiscuity? Your physical health in and of itself is compromised as the result of ignoring, ignoring the truths that are endemic in God's law when it comes to these things. So I agree with tradition. I agree that experience. I agree that reason should be employed in evaluating any worldview, and we should use all of these tools in debate. But Scripture, the Bible, for me, and for anybody who's claiming to be a Christian, should be your trump card. You have to have a trump card when you're playing the game. In other words, it's the most powerful card in the deck. And the Bible is that for me. So, as a Bible-believing Christian, I believe I'm supposed to obey the Bible. And when we come to Romans 13, chapter excuse me, Romans chapter 13, verse 1, it says this. I shared it with you yesterday. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. So it seems pretty clear, doesn't it? But as I said yesterday, Context is king. And when Paul tells the church of Rome that they are to be subject to the governing authorities, in other words, the government that God has instituted over them, he's talking about what? He's talking about the government of Rome. And that if you lived in Rome at the time, God in his sovereignty had placed that government over you, and therefore if they're not telling you to do something unbiblical, then do it. I agree. As a Bible-believing Christian, I don't have any right not to agree. But here's the question. We live in America. We don't live in Rome. We don't live in Saudi Arabia. We don't live in the Sudan. We don't live in Jordan. We live in America. So don't you think the logical question should be, What's the definition of governing authorities here in America? Well, as you know, I answered that question yesterday, and I referred to Bill Federer's book, Who is the King in America?, where he makes it very easy for us to answer that question because he goes back and cites quote after quote, which tells you exactly what the government is in America, what the definition of governing authorities is, the government of America is. And you know what I said. I said that it's very clear that from the very signers of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, such as the signer of the Constitution, Governor Morris, he wrote that the magistrate is not the king, the people are the king. And John Jay, the first chief justice, says the people are the sovereign in this country. 
And you know, I went on and cited quote after quote. Lincoln, in the Lincoln-Douglas debate, said the people of the United States are the rightful masters. Justice James Wilson, who signed the Declaration and the Constitution, said sovereignty resides in the people, and they have not parted with it. Thomas Jefferson said, he said this, there must be an ultimate arbiter somewhere. There must be the ultimate arbiter, and it is the people. James Madison wrote this, the ultimate authority resides in the people alone. And you know, I went on, I cited Andrew Jackson, the people are the government. President Gerald Ford said, never forget that in America, our sovereign is the citizen. He says, that means the people. President Reagan, sovereignty is in the people. Omar Bradley, the people are sovereign. The government is theirs to speak their voice and their voice is their will. So my point in doing all of that yesterday was to tempt you into thinking more deeply about what the definition of government really is in the country that you live in. What is the definition of government if you're an American? And I assume almost all of you that are listening right now are indeed that. So that's the relevant question. Is the definition of government for an American different than the definition of government for a first century Roman? Or the definition of government for a present citizen of Saudi Arabia or the country of Jordan? I think that that is the critical question. And context, 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 the definition of government is critical here. Because how do you know what you're supposed to obey if you don't understand the definition of that very thing that God calls you to be subservient to? Let's take a break, and when I get back, I'm going to share more with you about that definition within our country. And essentially, what is it? Let's define the thing. Let's define the thing, the government, that you're supposed to be subservient to here in the United States. I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and this is The Rebellion, and I will be right back in a couple minutes. Welcome back to The Rebellion. So the question for us is this. What's the definition of government in our country? Because that definition, whatever we decide it is, is the thing that you're supposed to obey, you're supposed to be subservient to, because it's that definition that God in his sovereignty has given you as an American people. Well, you probably know where I'm going to go with this. The definition of government in the United States is that we are a republic. You know the old famous quote where Benjamin Franklin was approached by Mrs. Elizabeth Powell of Philadelphia shortly after the ratification of the Constitution and asked him, asked Benjamin Franklin, Dr. Franklin, well, doctor, what have we got, a republic or a monarchy? Franklin replied, a republic if you can keep it. Now that simple question shines a light on this whole debate. What have we got, Dr. Franklin, a republic or a monarchy? There's a big difference here. There's a big difference in terms of the government that God in his sovereignty decided to give us as Americans. And Franklin was very clear. We have a republic, but it's our responsibility, the people's responsibility, to keep it, to maintain it, to defend it, to define it. See, in other words, a republic 
is where the people are the king. The people are the king. Again, who's the king in America? The people, because that's the nature of a republic. We're not a monarchy. We pledge allegiance to the flag and to the republic for which it stands. Not the monarchy, not the democracy, but to the republic. And as you know, in a republic, we elect representatives to go to Washington, D.C. and to do our will. We elect the people that we feel should represent the body at large. The individuals that we elect are to represent the masses, the people. Now, the question is, do we give our authority over to those representatives, those senators and those um, congressmen, When we elect them, do we just cede all of our authority and all of our responsibility over to them? The answer is no, not at all. In fact, Federer helps us again here by citing a quote by James Wilson, 1790 and 1791, when he wrote this. Um, He says this, and again, this is from James Wilson in his lectures on law, 1790-1791. The sovereign power residing in the people, they may change their constitution and government whenever they please. In free states such as ours, the sovereign or supreme power resides in the people. In other words, the constitution defines the government. We can change that constitution through amendments and whatnot as we please, but the sovereign or supreme power resides in the people, in the citizenry, in the population. The representatives don't have any authority to step outside of the Constitution. If they do, they have violated the very definition of the government that we hold dear in the United States of America. Excuse me, James Wilson goes further, and he says this, Let a state be considered as subordinate to the people, and by a state I mean a complete body of free persons united together. I know the government of that state to be Republican, and my short definition of such a government is one constructed on this principle. Listen to this, that the supreme power resides in the body of the people. So there's nothing there that suggests that if the representatives you elect step outside of the boundaries of the definition, if you will, of the Constitution that they pledge to uphold, there's nothing that suggests that you are obligated to obey them. And in fact, they're the ones that are disobeying the government because they're disobeying you. And they're thumbing their nose at the very definition of the government of our country. And that definition is held by our Constitution. Does it make sense? Calvin Coolidge said this in 1924, the history of government on this earth has been almost entirely a rule of force held in the hands of a few. And then under our Constitution, he says, America committed itself to power in the hands of the people. Again, again, our American system of government is committed to power in the hands of the people, not power in the hands of the few, whether it be the President of the United States, the Speaker of the House, the Congress, or the Senate. They have no power other than that which the Constitution gives them and that which you grant them when they step outside of those boundaries. They're the ones who aren't obeying the government. They're the ones 
in violation of Romans 13.1, not you. This all goes back to an example I've shared with you a couple times before on this show, and that's the difference between hierarchical governments and covenantal governments. Hierarchical governments are top-down. Hierarchical governments have a few people at the top telling everybody else below them what to do. It's a hierarchy. And as Oz Guinness told me, and I've shared the story with you before, if you want freedom, never vote for a hierarchy. Always vote for a covenant, because a covenant is a bonding agreement. I guess in its simplest form, a covenant is a handshake. My word is my bond. So it's a covenant, it's a commitment, it's a promise between the two of us. And we agree that that is the governing principle. That's the government over our relationship. And if you can trust me that when I tell you something that my word is my bond, we don't need a lot of other laws added to this particular governmental situation because I trust you, you trust me, we know what our relationship is, and we're going to tell each other the truth. Our word is the end of it, or a handshake seals the deal. There was a time when that was the case in our culture. But again, when you get rid of the big laws of God, you don't get liberty. You get thousands and thousands of little laws that rush in to fill the vacuum. And now what we have is more hierarchical understanding of government than we do covenantal, because we've abandoned the covenant of those 10 simple laws that God give us, gave us to live by. And as I've said over and over again, Jesus summarized those 10 by saying there were just two, or at least there's a summary of the 10 in the two. It's interesting here, you know I love G.K. Chesterton. Well, Federer um, references Chesterton's work when he wrote in What is America? What I Saw in America. Chesterton wrote that in 1922. He visited America, and his conclusion was this. This is from Chesterton, again, 1922. America is the only nation in the world that is founded on a creed, a covenant, if you will. And that creed is set forth in the Declaration of Independence, that all men are equal in their claim to justice, and that governments exist to give them that justice. The Declaration certainly does condemn atheism, since it clearly names the Creator as the ultimate authority from whom these equal rights are derived. So Chesterton is going back and citing that our country is very unique. It's the only nation, says Chesterton, and he knew what he was talking about. It's the only nation, says Chesterton, in the world that is founded on a creed and that that creed is set forth in the Declaration of Independence, that we are endowed by our Creator with certain unalienable rights, and we have knowledge of those self-evident truths that are given to us by God, and that it's this covenantal relationship, this understanding that we're made in the image of God and that we are free human beings. We are not animals. We are not automatons. We are not robots, and we are not serfs and servants under a sovereign king. We are charged to be self-governing as a republic, and it's a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. Now, Federer also makes this point in his book, and this is a very important one. He says this, in America, the people are the king, and pastors are the counselors to the king. 
counselors to the king who is sitting in their pews. Okay? So pastors are the counselor to the king. And who's the king? It's you and me that are sitting in the pews of the church. And what is the counselor's job? What is the pastor's job as he speaks to the king who's sitting before him? It's to wake the king up. It's to get the king to pay attention if he's asleep at the switch. Now, Federer uses this example from the movie The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers. He points out that there's a scene where King Theoden's kingdom of Rohan was on the verge of being overrun and destroyed. And the reason for this, do you remember? He was asleep. He was under a spell. And there was a wicked counselor, a wicked counselor to the king, and his name was Wormtongue. And Wormtongue kept whispering in the king's ear to keep him asleep. The counselor wasn't doing his job. In fact, he had reversed it. He was doing something evil rather than good. He was casting a spell on the king to keep him asleep so that he wouldn't do his job and protect the kingdom. Now, think about that in the context of Romans 13.1. What is the counselor doing to you today in your church? Is he shouting to you to wake up? Is he telling you that you're the king? You are the government. Do your job. Wake up, O sleeper. Get out of bed. Get engaged and fight the good fight for Christ and his kingdom. It is your job in a a republic in the United States of America to assume the responsibility of being the governing authority. Wake up. Is that what you're hearing? Is that what you're hearing from your counselor? Or are you hearing the opposite? That's for you to answer. I don't know. I don't know what church you go to. That's a question that you should be asking yourself. And it's one that you need to have an answer for. Now, there's another counselor in the Lord of the Rings, and you know who he is. His name is Gandalf. And he, rather than casting the spell, comes and breaks the spell. He wakes the king up. He does his job. And then Theoden dramatically comes to his senses His eyes become clear, and he takes up his sword. Okay? This particular scene in The Lord of the Rings shines a spotlight on two different kinds of counselors, two different kinds of pastors. One kind are those who whisper in the ears of the king, the people, to stay asleep, to shirk your responsibility, to be negligent, to be lazy, even as your kingdom faces destruction. And the other kind, says Federer, are those who want the king, the people, to wake up and take responsibility to rule, a responsibility for which you will be held held accountable to God. So if God in his sovereignty has given a kind of government to us, and if you're the king within that government, your counselor should be telling you to do your job, not to bow and abdicate the throne. That's Federer's point. He cites Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel, in the Old Testament, chapter 3, verses 16 through 21. And he says this as he gets ready to cite Ezekiel. This is Federer again. Pastors need to tell their church members that they do not just have the right to vote and the right to assume responsibility and authority as kings, 
but they will be held accountable to God if they don't. Ezekiel 3, 16, 21. Son of man, I have made thee a watchman unto the house of Israel. And when I say unto the wicked, thou shalt surely die, and thou givest him not warning to save his life, the same wicked man shall die in his iniquity. But his blood I will require at thine hand. In other words, do your job. You're a watchman unto the house of Israel. And in this case, he's Federer suggesting that you can apply it to America. In other words, it's the job of the counselor to challenge us, to wake up. Wake up, O king. This is what they should be saying to us. The opportunity for Americans to rule themselves is a great blessing. This is a blessing. This self-rule, this experiment is a great blessing. It's the definition of the government that God has given you. And it's your responsibility to take that very seriously. Pastors are watchmen on the wall. They're responsible to educate us, the kings, the queens of our republic, about the moral issues facing our nation and the biblical responsibility we have to protect those freedoms and to challenge anyone who dares to violate the Constitution that defines our government. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said this, The church is the conscience of the state. In the context of him making that statement, King was once once asked how he could justify uh, breaking some laws of the land while yet advocating that we obey others. And in his letter from the Birmingham jail, he answered, he answered his critics. He said the answer lies in the fact that there are two kinds of laws. There are just laws and unjust laws. And one has not only a legal, but a moral responsibility to obey just laws, said King. But conversely, one has a moral responsibility to disobey unjust laws. And how do we know the difference? Well, a just law, according to King, is a law that squares with the moral law of God. Okay? So King is telling us that there are just laws and there are unjust laws. Now, if you have a government official who is stepping outside the boundaries of the Constitution, of the covenant between you and him, and if he is abusing his authority, and if he is ignoring and thumbing his nose at you, the rightful king of that government, and if he is telling you to do something that is in contradiction to the Constitution that he has sworn to uphold, he's the one that is unjust not you. Just remember that. He's the one that's disobeying Romans 13, 1, not you. And you have a moral responsibility to, dis- to uh, disobey his injustice. I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and this is The Rebellion.